You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So we're about to do something, uh, like I said, that I've never done before, which is to walk through Exodus chapter 20, the whole chapter. Um, So you need your Bible and something to write on and something to write with, because I got all kinds of stuff to tell you about this morning. I'm really excited. So Exodus chapter 20 is where we are. We're walking through the series called Out of Exile, and it's been kind of a fun thing to watch some of you show up as we... Um, are coming out of exile together and out of this pandemic exile. We're also uh, walking uh, with Moses um, and the people of Israel toward the promises of God. We're remembering what God's promises are about, and we're also um, remembering what it means to be community. And this is one of those really powerful chapters that teaches us about being community together. I want to say that it's it's just um, not lost on me that Exodus chapter 20 really sits like a centerpiece of this whole Exodus story. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. You find the same kind of centerpiece in the book of Leviticus. Right in the middle of the book of Leviticus, there is the Passover, the the festival or the feast of Passover that um, God institutes for the people as they're walking through the desert. And so just like the Passover becomes a feast for the people of Israel, I would say also that these commandments are a feast. They're a feast of holiness. So you might want to write as a, as a heading above chapter 20, this is a feast of holiness. And then in verse, start with uh, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I want you to circle God spoke. God spoke. God spoke. What we're about to read then was not written by a guy making up rules because he had to drag a few hundred thousand people across the desert and he needed to know before they left the garage that everybody was going to act right. No, this collection of the law, which in Hebrew is Torah, that's kind of the collected law that you find in the first five books of the Old Testament. This is a set of 613 laws found in the Old Testament. The, these commandments that we find in Exodus 20 are the most famous of those laws, and they're the beginning of them. So it all begins on Mount Sinai. And this is our designer, not so much teaching us how to act as telling us how we're made. God spoke. Where else do we hear that? In Genesis, exactly. Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the creation story. You hear that same refrain over and over and over. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be land. God said, let there be water. God said, let there be animals. And it goes on and on. And God said, and God said, In John's version of the gospel in the New Testament, he draws from that that same chapter in Genesis and begins his telling of the good news with that same idea. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him, through the word. All these words spoken into creation, all things were made. When the word spoke, things were created. So when we read here in Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke all these words, this is more than just conversation. This is creation. This is God establishing holiness on the earth in the same way that he established oceans and animals. This is God creating the boundaries of holy community, making relationship the cornerstone of creation. You should write that down. Relationship is the cornerstone of creation. In other words, you're not an island unto yourself. That's what these, these uh, commandments teach us. And God spoke. He spoke these ten commands. And we're about to learn all ten of them. Are you ready? All right. Christians began the ten commandments at verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. But the Jews begin the commandments at verse two. And I tend to agree because verse 2 is the reason for verse 3. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 2 gives us our why for verse 3. Why should we give our allegiance, our devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why? So, because... Pharaoh's gods did not deliver you from slavery. Your own efforts did not deliver you from slavery. It wasn't Moses who delivered you, God says. He was a stuttering, reluctant, challenge-averse mess of a human being when I found him, says God. <laughs> no, God says, have no other gods before me, not because you owe me, but because I have proven myself to you as the one being with power enough to pull you up out of the slavery of your death-provoking circumstances. Come on, people. I am the one who delivered you from exile, who crossed over into enemy territory for the sake of your soul. And I did that for you while you were still a wreck of a human being. So to ask me to put no other gods before God is to ask me to serve and love the one being with power enough to save me, not just from slave masters, but from myself. It is to ask me to exclusively claim the one who redeems my life from the pit who heals my diseases, who casts out my demons. Friends, the God of the first commandment is still in the business of bringing people up out of the land of slavery. Come on, Free Tuesdays people. I need to hear you right now. The first court four commandments then are about wholehearted devotion to that God. The second and third commandment are about cultivating a holy fear of this God. Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And then verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now I want you to hold that thought and skip down to chapter 20, verse 18. 
after God has given all these commandments to Moses, it is amazing to see the shift in the people. Verse 19, they're all, hey, we want to go up the mountain with you. We want to see God too. Jesus is my homeboy. But by verse 18, after the smoke and all the other stuff, they're like, hey, you go up for us, okay? It's a much more humble approach. Look at verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And then Moses gives you the two kinds of fear, which we've talked about before, but we're going to talk about them again. He says, do not be afraid, not in your own human self. Don't be that kind of afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Sort of like the parent who says, you know, I don't want you, I don't want my child to be afraid of me, but I want him to be a little afraid of me. This is a powerful moment. The people are being exposed to the power of God, and they've got this mix of sheer terror and this glorious exposure to holiness. And Moses says, I don't want you to be afraid of God, but I do want you to have a healthy fear of him. Now take that feeling and put it back up in verse 4. That's what I hear in the second and third commandments. God wants to cultivate a holy posture in us. Intimate, but not casual. That's what you should write in the margin of verses 4 through 7. Intimate, but not casual. We recognize our place in the presence of something we can barely comprehend. Holiness. Pure holiness. And this God invites us to be wholeheartedly His. Look at the fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter. This, this list cracks me up every time I read it because it's God knowing our, you know, the little person, the little kid in us who's trying to find a loophole in there somewhere. Not you, not your son, not your daughter, not your friend, not your brother. You cannot get your brother to go do this for you. Not your servant, not your animals, because God knows you. Get your dog to go do it. Nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The first thing I want to say here is that this is the commandment that I most consistently have an issue with, just personally. And I can't talk about it without telling you that I worked all day yesterday. I really struggle to, to lay it down. But it's, that's an admission of my own weakness and in my own lack of trust and faith. Because of this commandment calls, uh, calls us to admit God's power to finish the work. That's what Sabbath does, because on this side of the fall, we never come to the end of the work, unless you're, I don't know, I don't even know if you can. I don't know if you can come to, there's always something, always something else. But Sabbath is me saying, I trust you with all that is left undone in my world, and I give you today in faith, believing that you will finish the things that you started. 
That's the first thing I want to say about this commandment. The second thing I want, to, want you to notice is that this is the one commandment that comes with an explanation, and it happens twice. The Ten Commandments are listed twice in the Old Testament, once here in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy. And both times, this commandment has an explanation, almost like, yeah, we know we, why we shouldn't kill people, but why do we need a day off? So here in Exodus, the Sabbath is explained as part of creation, which makes sense, right? Because this is, we just learned, a creation narrative. But listen, the second time it's explained as a freedom principle. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the commandments are listed again. And when we get to the one about Sabbath, that's chapter 5, uh, verse 14, it says, On the Sabbath you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your, or any of your people or animals. And then verse 15, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is Sabbath as a mark of freedom. We get a Sabbath because we're not slaves the daily grind is not what we were created for. And this is a call not just to stop working, but to take on the mindset of a free person. Because listen, I can be out in the desert in Egypt with, with Egypt behind me and still have the mind of a slave. And slaves don't get a day off. So Sabbath was an every week opportunity for an Israelite to proclaim his freedom. Almost like having a 12-step meeting every week for people in recovery from slavery. Can you imagine? After years of seven-day-a-week back-breaking, thankless labor, being told you get a day off every week to rest... What a grace. So the first four commandments are about God. The next six are about us, about how we relate to each other, think about each other, take care of each other. And it starts with our parents. Look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. It always cracks me up. That always comes to my mind when, so that you may live long in the land your Lord gave you is, is I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. That's what I think about. But the Hebrew word here for honor literally means to be heavy. It can also mean to glorify or give value or respect, but I really like that meaning, to be heavy. To honor someone is to feel the weight of appreciation, which is not the same as doing what they say because they are the parents and they said so. To truly honor your parents means to feel the weight of your appreciation for them, to feel the weight of their value as human beings. So I want to do this right now, a little exercise, with anyone in the room who still has a living parent. If you still have a living parent, I want you to get your cell phone out. I realize there's people in this room who don't have living parents. I don't either, but we're in community, and some of you do, so this is for those who do, okay? While you're holding your phone, I want you to stop and think about how the food gets in the refrigerator. Or if you're grown and you're not living, how did the food get in the refrigerator when you lived at home? How did the soap get in the shower? 
I'm thinking that because this morning there was no soap in my shower, and I'm the adult in the house now. <laughs> I could have used a mom. How the air conditioner kicks on when it's hot outside. Who pays the, uh, the cell phone bill? And just for a minute, let yourself feel heavy with appreciation for your parents. And now I want you to send a text to your mom or dad saying, I really want you to know I appreciate all you do for me. I don't say it much, but I mean it. Well, you guys who have parents are doing that. Let me say something to some of you who, who have parents who've not been so great. Maybe you lived with an angry negative father or a harsh and judgmental mom or parents who were just kind of a wreck. Maybe it was rough and they broke your spirit. How can those who have had dishonorable parents honor this call to honor them? Well, the answer, I think, is in Jesus and in his spirit of grace. The best way to honor anyone who has not been good to me is to walk in forgiveness toward them. To walk in forgiveness doesn't mean we become their best friend or that they become ours. In fact, it requires that we acknowledge the hurt. I can't walk in forgiveness if I don't know how I have something to forgive. But when we lay down our right to be repaid, that's walking in forgiveness. We cancel the debt. We no longer hold that offense against them. And for some of us, that may be the best way to honor the people who brought us into this world. Forgiveness is also one more way to proclaim our freedom. Look at verse 13. You shall not murder. Which is funny to me, coming on the heels of the other one about, you know, so that you can live long in this land. It's like telling the kids, honor your parents and telling your parents, don't kill them. <laughs> I'm sure that's not what they mean, but it makes me laugh. You shall not murder. This is sort of the escape clause commandment, you know. We use it to say, well, at least I've never murdered anybody. But just about the time we start to feel good about ourselves, Jesus gets our attention. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will also be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that's an Aramaic term of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Phew, hear that, my Facebook friends. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you remember that they have something against you, you need to leave your gift in front of the altar and go be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And then he says this, right? The very next verse, he says, settle matters quickly. Don't drag this around. When you drag it around, it's like dragging around a corpse. Which is to say that grace is not a moment or an activity it is a lifestyle. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. This is a lifestyle, a mindset. The Hebrew word for a law, not the law, that's Torah, but a law, is halakha. 
That's the word God gave the Israelites, halakha. It's come to uh, talk about a collection of laws, but originally this word uh, was to talk about a law, and it means literally to go or to walk or to travel. So this word, halakha, which refers to Jewish laws, literally means the path that one walks. Isn't that cool? Which teaches me that what God has wanted for his people from the very beginning is a walking faith. If I have a walking faith, it means I have not just a set of rules to follow, but a path, a particular way of living out my faith so that not only is every part of my life impacted, but every part of the the world around me is impacted as I walk this out. I am walking in a culture of holiness, and it shows up in how I interact with people every day. Do I hang on to people long past good sense, or do I write them off too quickly? Have I learned how to listen to, for what is good in another person? Do I walk in forgiveness? Do I walk in grace? So when God gives a commandment like, you shall not murder, what God is really asking us is, is to walk this commandment all the way out, to walk it all the way out to the very way that we think and approach the world. The same principle applies to the seventh commandment. Look at verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And again, before we start parsing out our own behavior so we can say, well, sure, I've looked at porn or I've looked at some cute young thing, but I've never cheated. Before we can get there, Jesus stops us. Matthew 5, 27. And he says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away. The contemporary word might be get a, a, um, get a thing on your computer that locks you out of stuff. If you're, if you're, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. The contemporary translation might say, get yourself an accountability partner. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Which feels a little frustrating, right? Because who can live in this world perfectly? And the answer is, Nobody. That's the point. None of us lives above the sin line. We are all dead men walking and in desperate need of a Savior. Listen, this may be the most profound statement you ever hear. We've said it before. We'll say it again. We are forgiven of everything we are not because of everything Jesus is. We are forgiven of everything we are not because of everything Jesus is. Jesus is a friend of sinners, which is great news for us. Jesus, who we believe to be the Son of God, gave up his place as God to become a man. He lived a human life, but a sinless human life, sinless humanity, all God, all man. And that Jesus, unwilling that even one of his own should perish, crossed over into enemy territory for the sake of your soul and mine, capturing the power of death and bringing it back under God's power. He did that for you while you were still a sinner. 
before you believed. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if that's true, then maybe we need a little humility in the face of our fallenness in God's law. When I walk out the halakha, I know I need Jesus. When I walk it out far enough, I realize I am only redeemed by the power of Jesus. Look at the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. That's verse 15. You shall not steal. When we walk this one out, it's really about hiding. It's about the mindset of hiding. I have the best story to tell you guys. Friday morning, I got a call from one of our people. She was very excited, proud of herself. And so you don't wonder, she is happy for me to tell her, to let you hear her story. She told me, yesterday, I went to Walmart and I didn't steal anything. Which may not sound like much to you, but for her, that was a big deal. She told me, since I was 15 years old, just about every time I go to the store, I take something. Since she was 15, Friday was her birthday, 47 years since she was 15. Every time she goes to the store. So making it out of a store without lifting anything, that's a big deal to her. She said, the fact that it didn't even cross my mind even was amazing. So there's a backstory to this story. And the story is, not too long ago, she got busted by a store. And she'd been given a public defender. And um, she, she met with the public defender along with one of my, our people who helped her get there. And she said she'd made a promise to that public defender not to do it again. And I know her well enough to know that promises haven't always been her friend. But something was different this time. She was really proud of herself Friday when she told me all this. She said, when I got home, I made this promise to God never again. She said, I'd made a promise to the public defender and to our friend, but it wasn't until I made that promise to God that I felt the weight of this commitment. The weight of it. Do you remember? The honor. I'm saying this to say that you shall not steal. For some people, that's a deal. You know, a lot of times when we teach the Ten Commandments, we try to turn them sideways so we can hit as many people with them. And so we say, you know, this isn't just about stealing stuff. This is about stealing someone's reputation or stealing their joy or stealing their sense of worth. And those are all valid points. But I also know, I also know there are people in this community who actually, really, literally steal stuff, who struggle a lot in your relationship with money and stuff, who rack up debt or take things without permission, who hide things, you ought not be hiding. Because we who follow Jesus have nothing to hide. And if you're one of those people, I don't know what it will take for you to feel the weight of a promise to God. I'm going to heal from this. I'm going to stop because I want to live a transparent life. I don't know what it's going to take for you, but today 
we know someone who turned a corner after 47 years. And if she can, you can. Amen? We have to learn how to celebrate the progress of our people. I want you to remember that. We'll come back to it. It's a journey, not a moment. Exodus 20, 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This means don't slander people, but it goes a lot deeper than that. When we ride this commandment out to its logical end, it's about cultivating a culture of honor. It's about, in the absence of information, assuming the good intentions of others. And I'm telling you, this is an incredibly relevant word for us right now because distancing has created a severe lack of trust. I would say we are severely malnourished as a country, as a world right now, in the area of trust. We've stopped trusting people who, can actually, who are actually trustworthy. We've stopped trusting people because uh, when the, in, the, in the absence of information, our fallen selves tend to default to the worst. So we need to remember that some people may not, they may not have perfect lives, but their intentions are good. Our world is trust-starved, and this commandment speaks to that malnourished parts of us and challenges us. It's, hear this. It's not you shall not give false testimony. Don't lie. It's don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Ride that out to its conclusion. That means not in front of them, not behind their back, not on Facebook, not in your mind. The last commandment is about how we think. It isn't just about how we act, but how we think about life, which is pretty much what all these commandments are about. Look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant. Again, this is hilarious to me. He's like naming all the things because he knows you're, how you're made. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not cover, covet is a merciful commandment. It's an invitation. Listen, it is an invitation to stop inviting disappointment into your life. You should write that in the margin. This is an invitation to stop inviting disappointment into my life. Because listen, there is no alternate reality with a better house, better spouse, better stuff waiting for you to finally get on board. And there is no alternate reality where if you've just gotten that other degree, just finished high school, just gotten the other job, just taken the other offer for marriage, just done whatever the other thing is that you're thinking about right now, there is no other alternate reality where that might have, well, or, or where you are sure that would have turned out perfectly for you. The fact is, you've got what you've got right now. And Paul says, he will take, the Holy Spirit will take what you've got right now, and he will work it together for your good. That way of thinking, that disappointed way of thinking, that, uh, that, that sense of, uh, of just feeling disappointment with the world, 
depends on believing that other options or better options exist when in fact they don't. But when we start wishing we had what, we ha what other people have, we invent disappointment for ourselves. Do you see how damaging that is? Listen, when we fail to own our own choices and live them out positively in partnership with the Holy Spirit, we not only waste time on the illusions we conjure up, but we miss out on the reality that we have. So, God uh, challenged me with this part of the message. He challenged me to let, to speak from my heart. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> he challenged me to speak from my heart at this point because the whole thing about the Ten Commandments is about the heart. But you guys know me. I, I don't talk to Steve without a manuscript. I'm not that good off the cuff. But the... But the Lord said, no, you know what? There comes a place for all of us where we really got to get inside there and ask ourselves, what does this really mean for me? What does this really mean for me? As I've been thinking and praying about it, the first thing that comes to my mind is this. It was 1,400 years between God receiving these commandments or, or, sorry, Moses receiving these commandments from God. And when Jesus walked the earth, about 1,400 years. About 1,400 years from, look, just try not to kill people to, you know what, actually, when you call people foolish, that's a kind of murder. See the difference? 1,400 years of God's extraordinary patience while his people made the journey from primitive to maturity. And where we are right now as a culture, this cancel culture thing, one misstep and you write people off immediately. And for many of us, because of our wounds, one misstep and we... We, we trash you and we, we write you off personally because we are slow to trust anybody on our best days. One misstep misses, it misses the journey. And more importantly, it misses grace. And both things are important to the body of Christ. I mean, the Exodus is all about the journey, right? It's all about the walk through the desert and this... You know, the, I can't say stupidity of the Israelites because I was just told by one of those commandments not to do that to people. But the, uh, <laughs> just, because just, I am an Israelite, right? The whole thing is about how you get right up to the promises of God. You get right up to the promises of God and then you let fear pull you back. Or you got somebody who's, who's helping you get there and you look at that person and constantly saying, where's my food? Where's my water? Why did you even bring us out here? Were there not graves enough for us back in Egypt? We, we, we miss the beauty and the sanctification of the journey. We need the grace of persistence 
rather than the grace of perfectionism. That's what we need. That's what we need. And we miss the grace. I mean, the grace. We are people. I mean, what do we say in our church over and over again? We hang on to people long past good sins, right? <laughs> That's what we do. If we didn't, I wouldn't still be here. You've held on to me long past good sins. So, as we come out of exile, as we walk out of exile, because this is a walking faith, the halakha, as we walk out of exile, what are the treasures we bring with us out of slavery? I think you bring the treasure of holiness. I think you bring the treasure of grace. I think you bring the treasure of sanctification, the journey, the understanding that this won't happen in a moment. This is not an activity. This is a mindset. I think you bring the treasure of freedom and you pass it along to other people. And you bring the treasure of community because these laws were not spoken to a person. They were spoken to a people. You bring the treasure of community out of exile. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.